John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother's Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When we last left the account in the Gospel of John, which was last Sunday, John chapter 10, we saw that Jesus again narrowly escaped being stoned to death by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So he went away more than a day's journey outside of Jerusalem and actually over the border from Judea into the land across the Jordan River. He went there for some calm before the storm. He went there to arm for a coming battle. He went there to escape the immediate threat. But now while Jesus is in this area known as Perea, he hears from his dearly beloved friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother, who was also a dear friend to Jesus, a man named Lazarus, that Lazarus was sick. I mean, that's how the narrative begins. Look at it there, right there in verse one. Now, a certain man was sick. Now, if you've been with us through our studies through the Gospel of John, you can probably guess what happens next. I mean, isn't this throughout the Gospel narratives? Uh, A certain man was blind. A certain man was lame. A certain man had leprosy. A certain man was demon-possessed. By now, we kind of get it. Oh, yeah, Jesus hears of a need, and he's going to do something. Let's see what Jesus will do. But in some ways, what Jesus does in and through this story of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, which we're going to cover this week and then next Sunday as well, it's so remarkable, it's so unique, that it sort of comes at the pinnacle of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry before the events directly related to him going to the cross. So we're introduced in verse 1 to the main characters of the story, a man named Lazarus, And his two sisters, Mary and Martha, these seem to be a group of single adults. We don't hear anything about them being married, but they were close friends and they lived in a village called Bethany, which was just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. It seemed that when Jesus visited Jerusalem, he would often stay with this family, Lazarus, Mary and Martha. They had a close friendship. But notice what happens here in verse three. They bring this request to him and when simply what they say is verse three, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, I realize I just misspoke there. I said they bring this request to him. What's notable about verse 3 is it contains no request. All they do is to inform Jesus. Now, look, Jesus loves to hear our requests. We should not be embarrassed about asking God for things in prayer, especially if we do it with a submitted and surrendered heart unto him. But what I want you to notice is here they don't even ask Jesus for anything. They knew that it was enough. Jesus, if I tell you the need, you'll do the rest. I trust you to do that. So they didn't even say, Jesus, please come and heal Lazarus. Please come and help our brother. Please come and minister to our family. None of that. All they did was explain the need and they felt that Jesus would do the rest. So let's see what Jesus will do. And before we get into verse four, I just kind of want to tell you, metaphorically speaking, fasten your seatbelt because Jesus is going to act in a very unusual way at verse four. Look at this. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place 
where he was. This is weird. First of all, notice what Jesus said in verse 4. This sickness is not unto death. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into the details of it, but if you chart the story out carefully and look at the chronology and plan it all out, we come to find out that by the time Jesus got this message, Lazarus was dead. When the messengers left Bethany, it was at least a day's journey to where Jesus was. When they left Bethany, Lazarus was still alive. But by the time they arrived to Perea, where Jesus was hanging out with the disciples, Lazarus was dead. What's more, Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead. Nevertheless, he says, this sickness is not unto death. Now, friends, we get the bigger picture. We get what Jesus is pointing at here. But I just want you to appreciate, we would never say it the way Jesus said it right here. We would say it something like this. We would say, this sickness is unto death, but God will glorify himself in it. Wouldn't we say it something like that? My friends, Lazarus was already dead and Jesus knew it. Yet he says, this sickness is not unto death. Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? Friends, this is just a vivid, almost extreme illustration of the principle that Jesus was so focused on the resolution of it, of how it was going to end, of how it was going to turn out. Because when this story is done, spoiler alert, Lazarus is not going to be dead. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That dead body of Lazarus is going to be resuscitated and brought back to life. And Jesus is so focused on the end result He's not even talking about the process. He doesn't even explain, well, yeah, I know he's dead right now, but just wait, I'm going to do something. No, he goes, no, it's not unto death. There's just a very brief principle here for us to grab a hold of. We tend to focus so much on the process when God works things that we lose sight of the end. I want you to notice that Jesus was so focused on the end, on the result, that it's almost like he didn't even see the process. Now, of course, he did see it, He said, I'm not even focused on that. Oh, may God help us to be more focused on the end of what God is accomplishing in our life rather than to focus so much on the process. In any regard, I want you to notice here, it says in verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them very pointedly, very, very uh, individually. And I want you to notice that because verse six throws us a contrast with that. It says that he stayed two more days. I love them so much that I'm not going to respond to their need. What? Jesus, don't love me that much. It's almost as if we want to say that. It's almost as if we say, Jesus, when I call out to you, if I say that somebody I love is sick, if I say that I'm hurting, if I'm saying I'm needed, I don't want you to tell me how much you love me and then wait two days to come and minister to me. I need it now, Jesus. Friends, this is what I want you to see. Jesus is focused on the end. Jesus is focused on the big picture. The delay was no doubt mystifying to his disciples. Can't you see the disciples of Jesus saying, Lazarus is sick. Why are we hanging around here two more days? What are we going to do? It was mystifying to the disciples. It was agonizing to Mary and Martha. Agonizing. We told Jesus today, why isn't he here the next day? Why is he waiting? Why is he delaying? And friends, I understand 
The delay was mystifying to the disciples. It was agonizing to Mary and Martha. Yet love was behind the delay. That Jesus prolonged the sorrow of Mary and Martha. Let's not sugarcoat this. They were in agonized grief two days longer than they would have been otherwise. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to allow that. And it's because of love. Friends, I just want you to grab a hold of something. It's a big principle here. And the principle is simply this. When Jesus delays, it's because of love. Man, I would a thousand times rather say that than live it. But I think everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ has had to live that at some time or another, haven't we? God, why are you waiting so long? What are you doing? How could this possibly be? Listen, I don't understand your specific circumstance, but I just will say this. If ever you feel that Jesus is delaying, would you please trust his delay is because of love? It's not because he's mad at you. It's not because he's punishing you. Was Jesus mad at Mary or Martha? Was he punishing them? Was he repaying them for being bad girls at some time or another? No. He loved them. And in the big picture, this would be proven. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because light is not in him. After two days, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, let's go to Judea. Now, I think that the disciples were hoping that the two-day delay was because they weren't going to Judea at all because Jesus was a wanted man there. The last time he was in Judea, the religious leaders had rocks in their hands and ready to stone. They narrowly escaped there. They're saying, good, Jesus, we're glad that you're going to take the very sensible move to not go to Judea. No, that had nothing to do with it. After two days, Jesus says, now we're going to go. Let's go now. Now, the first thing you might ask yourself is, is, listen, Jesus, could not you have raised Lazarus from the dead or healed him of his sickness long distance? He's done that before. But listen, Jesus said, no, that's not the Father's will in this situation. We're going to go, and I'm not afraid for my own life, because are there not 12 hours in the day? Jesus is using a figure of speech to get across this simple idea. The simple idea is that God has appointed a time for every one of us to work. And as long as we're in God's appointed time for us to work, are we not invulnerable? Is it not true that my life, your life, the life of Jesus, of course, is in the Father's hands? And during that time, we just can do our work. To use kind of a silly metaphor, um, there's an expiration date, say, on a carton of milk. Jesus knew his expiration date. And he said, I'm good until then. I don't have to worry about it until then. Now, he knew the time was short, but he knew he had that time. If there's 12 hours in a day, Jesus was in the 11th hour. There's no doubt about it. But he goes, look, I'm good. Here's kind of the difficulty for you and I. There is an expiration date on our life. We just don't know it. And that's why... It's good for us to be about our Father's business now. To get real about living for Jesus Christ now. To to not delay, to not wait. You don't know the expiration date. So get real about it 
now. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. It's interesting to see how confused the disciples were. First, they were confused by the figure of speech Jesus used. Sleep is a common metaphor in the ancient world and also in the current day for someone who's dead. You know, they've gone to their rest, the eternal sleep, that kind of idea. Yes, and Jesus is using that figure of speech for Lazarus here. Now, the disciples were confused by that. They said, oh, if he's sleeping, that's good. It means he's recovering. Jesus said, no, you don't understand He's not sleeping in that literal sense. He's metaphorically sleeping. He's dead. Now now the disciples were really confused. Jesus, if he's dead, why are we going to go there? It's past the time for doing anything, Jesus. Why would we go there? Why would we endanger our lives? Because you are still a wanted man. But Jesus says it very plainly there in verse 14. And these are two phrases that don't go together. Look at it. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Friends, those two phrases, Lazarus is dead, and the phrase, and I am glad, don't really seem to fit together, do they? But Jesus could be glad. Even in the death of a dear friend, because Jesus knew what God was going to do in and through this. You see, at the, event, at the end of the events of this chapter, here's what's going to happen, is that grief will be comforted. Life will be restored. Many more people will believe upon Jesus. And the necessary events for Jesus to go to the cross and rise from the dead will be set in motion. All of those things are good things and reasons to be glad. That's why Jesus could say, and I am glad. The disciples weren't happy about this, but verse 16, then Thomas who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, that's a cheery word from Thomas. But Thomas is saying, disciples, hey, let's go. If Jesus is a wanted man and faces death in Jerusalem, let us go and we will die with him. Two things to notice. First of all, it says Thomas, who is known as the twin, Do you know why they called Thomas the twin? We don't know for certain, but the best evidence we have, this isn't really from the Bible, but more from church traditions and church history. The best evidence we have is they called Thomas the twin because he, of all the 12 disciples, was the one who looked the most like Jesus. Now, if he looked the most like Jesus, whose life among the 12 disciples would be most in danger by hanging out with Jesus, whom they wanted to kill? Thomas shows a lot of courage when he says, let's go. Let's go that we may die with him. Put me down on the list. I'm willing to do this. Now, it makes me think of another principle as well. If Thomas believed this way, I want you to understand the principle that why do we call him doubting Thomas? Now, look, I'm not trying to sugarcoat his doubt. At the end of the Gospel of John, Thomas doubted. And he said, I'm not going to believe until I put my fingers in his wounds. There's no, no question about that. But why don't we call him courageous Thomas? 
When you get to heaven and you meet Thomas, I would just caution you, don't call him, oh, you're doubting Thomas. <laughs> I, I don't know if people get mad in heaven, but I could see Thomas getting a little bit mad and going, why does everybody call me that? <laughs> Listen, we could call him courageous Thomas, could we not? It just reminds me of a principle. Nobody wants to be judged by their worst moments, do they? Don't we have a way of doing this to people? Don't we have a way of judging other people by their worst moments? Now look, I could say this confidently of anybody in this room, certainly of the man who happens to be up on the platform at this present moment. I do not want to be judged by my worst moments. And I think we should extend that grace to other people as well. Okay, let's go on here. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem and about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Oh, friends, there's a lot for us to unpack in those verses. First of all, look at verse 17, where it says that Lazarus was already in the tomb. How many days? Four days. Why is that important? It's important because of a superstition that was held among the Jewish people at that time. It wasn't a fact, but it was a commonly held superstition. And here was the superstition. It said that when a person died, their spirit hovered around the body for three days waiting to see if it could come back. I'm not saying a body ever came back, but I'm just saying that's what they believed in their superstition, that the spirit hovered around the body for three days. But on the fourth day, the spirit looked at the body and said, this thing is getting too ripe. I'm out of here and I'm not coming back. In other words, according to the Jewish superstitions, they believed that once the fourth day after death came, resuscitation or coming back alive was absolutely impossible. Now do you see why Jesus waited two days? Because he did not want to come to that tomb until the fourth day so that he could do a miracle that was so amazing, so beyond what anybody expected or could think that everybody would notice. And that's why Jesus waited two days. That's why he allowed Mary and Martha to grieve two days longer than they would have otherwise. Now, they were grieving. Look at verse 19. It says, many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha. This was a large crowd. They're still there four days after Lazarus was buried. You see, in that custom, in that culture, they had big elaborate ceremonies for mourning and and it was loud. It was raucous. Oftentimes they would hire professional mourners. Because they felt you needed the atmosphere of having people who would wail and just... Now look, we, we kind of come from more an English tradition where we're expected you got to keep those emotions in. Stiff upper lip and all that. You know, and you, know, you might shed maybe an appropriate tear here, but it's very important to keep it all... Look, that's just kind of our cultural tradition. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but that's kind of what it is. It was not like that among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They let it all rip. Matter of fact, they thought it showed more love for the person who died if you screamed louder. 
if you were more broken up. So you can only imagine how chaotic, how loud, how active this scene was around the tomb of Lazarus or around the morning. They weren't at the tomb exactly yet. And in the midst of all this, look at what Martha says to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a very honest statement, isn't it? Jesus, if you would have come while he was still sick, you could have healed him. Now, this is what I want you to notice. It is not even in her mind that Jesus would raise him from the dead. That's completely off the table. She's just thinking, Jesus, if you would have come sooner, he would still be alive because I know you can heal people. You could have healed my brother. And then she goes on, verse 22, after that statement of sincere disappointment. By the way, I should just add this before we look at verse 22. Isn't it amazing? that she could so forthrightly, so honestly express her disappointment to Jesus. I know that some of you know what it's like to lose someone that you love, someone who's dear to you. And, And not in kind of the right circumstances. What do I mean by the right circumstances? Well, I, I, I don't mean to, to make light of this in any way, but, you know, when your dear mother uh, is 97 years old and then drifts off to eternity in a peaceful rest, I mean, it's kind of like, all right, well, we're, we're, we're more all right with that. But, but for many of us, many of you, you've experienced it where, where death seems to have robbed you. And there's something so traumatic in that. And many of you have thought or said very similar words to what Martha said right here. Jesus, you could have done this different. It could have played out different. You are God, after all. It could have been different. I want you to notice how Jesus reacted to Martha. He didn't say, how dare you say such an impertinent statement. Jesus loved her. And if you've got those aching questions of pain and disappointment, you can bring them to Jesus. He will not despise you for them. Matter of fact, she shows a good corollary statement of faith. Now look at verse 22. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What do I understand? She's not thinking of him raising Lazarus from that tomb. That's not even in her mind. What she's trying to say is, Jesus, there is a sense in which you have disappointed me, yet I still love you. I still trust you. And I pray God would give every person in this room that grace. Because there's some of us It's like, well, Jesus, you disappointed me on this one. Forget it. I I may not deny you, but you know what? For the rest of my life, I'm keeping you at a very healthy arm's length. I'll never get close to you again, Jesus, because you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. And I thought I was entirely reasonable in the request. Listen, may God give us that heart to be able to say, very simply, very powerfully, 
even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I haven't lost my confidence in you. Matter of fact, I love that idea, that, that statement that she says there in verse 22, even now. You disappointed me, Jesus, but even now. And friends, I believe that there is great power in even now kind of faith. You can make an analogy out of this. You can say, listen, your problem may seem as impossible as raising a person from the dead, but do you believe that Jesus can work in it even now? You can say that that you may have a loved one who, spiritually speaking, they're dead. Spiritually, they have no life from Jesus Christ. Not only are they dead, but they're like Lazarus. They're decomposing and they're smelly spiritually. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to work in their life even now? I know you've been disappointed. You've been praying for them for years and you don't see anything happening. Can you say, I believe in you, Jesus, even now? Your own situation can be as far gone as Lazarus' situation was. Do you believe Jesus for yourself even now? So now look at what Jesus says to her. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. What a scene. They're not exactly at the tomb, but they're not far from it. They're in the circle of mourners, and Jesus is having this heart-to-heart conversation with Martha. She's expressed her disappointment. She's expressed her faith despite the disappointment. And now Jesus is trying to lift her eyes up higher. I am the resurrection and life. But friends, I want you to notice this. That actually in this scene right now, not at the tomb, but not far from it, in the circle of these mourners, this is where we have to end it for uh, this week, and we'll take it up more next week. The continuing story of Jesus at the tomb of Martha and Mary. And, And really, what you see next week is going to be amazing. But don't we have to talk about what we just read right here? Notice this. The idea that Jesus would raise her brother from the dead is so far away from Martha's mind. He he said, your brother will rise again. Okay, Jesus, I get it. On the last day, you'll raise him from the dead. I get it, Jesus. You see, but Jesus didn't mean that exactly, not in this situation. He meant your brother will rise again right now. You know, when you and I comfort a grieving person by saying, you will see him again. We sincerely mean it, and it's true. But, but listen, we don't mean you'll see him again right now. Jesus meant it that way. This is what I want you to understand. Martha believed in a general sense the truth of the resurrection. Did she not? Yes, Jesus, I believe. You're going to raise him on the last day. But the general truth wasn't enough for her. She needed it to be personal for her and she needed it to be right then. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Sometimes a general truth is not enough for us. It has to be personal and it has to be immediate for us. What do I mean? You you may say this morning, um, 
I agree. I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Hallelujah. I agree with that as well. This one went Is he your Savior? And is he your Savior right now? Martha could say, I believe that he'll rise again. Jesus said, okay, great. That's not enough. Do you believe he's going to rise and he's going to rise right now? You could say, I believe that the work that Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, that, that, that it forgives my sins and it makes me right with God. You, you, you could say that in a general sense. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Great. But do you believe it for yourself personally? And do you believe it right now? Do you see the difference between the two? Now, I want you to notice, Jesus then went on to say in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Friends, Jesus did not claim to have the resurrection and the life. He did not claim to understand the resurrection and life, even though that's true. No, Jesus dramatically said, I am the resurrection and life. This is what I am. To know Jesus is to know resurrection life. To have Jesus is to have resurrection life. It's as if this is what he said to Martha. You say that you believe your brother will rise again on the last day. But listen, I'm the one who's going to do that on the last day. And if I'm going to do it on the last day, I can do it right now. And that's exactly what Jesus would shortly do in this amazing, powerful scene. Then Jesus says this in verse 26. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. In other words, Jesus boldly challenged Martha to believe that he was the source of eternal life. And he presented himself as the champion over death. I am the one who overcomes death. Humanity fears death. But Jesus says, no, if you are in me, if you are my follower, you don't have to fear death. You might fear dying, and there's a difference between the two, right? Someone may fear dying, but they may not fear death. We as believers, we do not need to fear death, not at all. No, the believer will never die. They're simply going to make a transition from an old life to a new life. I really like something Charles Spurgeon said about this. Let me quote him. Those that believe in Jesus Christ appear to die, but yet they live. They are not in the grave. They are forever with the Lord. They are not unconscious. They are with their Lord in paradise. Death cannot kill a believer. It can only usher him into a freer form of life. So friends, if you're outside of Jesus, then death comes like a prison sentence. If you're in Jesus, then death comes like an invitation to the palace of a king. If you're outside of Jesus, death is like an execution. In Jesus, death is like changing into a better suit of clothes. If you're outside of Jesus, death is the greatest fear. In Jesus, death is the end of fear. It is a graduation to glory. Do you see the difference between those two? And so in the midst of that, Jesus says this, and then he looks at Martha right in the face, and he says, do you believe this? You, Martha. And don't you think that Jesus Christ speaks across the centuries right now, soul to soul, person to person with you, and he wants to know from you individually, do you believe this? I hope you could respond just like Martha did. Look at what she says in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. She answered correctly. She answered that Jesus was both Messiah, the Christ, And God the Son, the Son of God right there. 
And matter of fact, her phrasing was emphatic. No matter what anybody else thinks, I believe. And that's what God wants for you. To trust in Jesus Christ today for your life, both now and in eternity. Say, I believe you are the resurrection life. And Jesus, you helping me, I will have no fear of death. I might fear dying, but never death. My life is safe in you. Now, one writer called these words of Martha, faith's foothold. In other words, they were like a support from which she could climb higher. Did Martha have it all figured out? No. I don't even know if she yet knew that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead right then. I don't know if she understood that. But listen, what she had was she had a firm foothold of faith and from that firm foothold she could climb up higher i'll end it with this that's what i want for you i want you to be able to say listen i don't understand everything i understand all the mysteries of jesus and his work and who he is and what he did for me but what i do know is a firm foothold of faith for me and i'm going to use that foothold to climb higher. In other words, you may have something facing you right now this week that you can't figure out. God, help me. What am I going to do? I I need your help now. And and all I have is a sermon about the resurrection. Okay, great, Jesus. That's a ways off for me. I need your help right now for this crisis. Friends, don't you get it? What you have right now is understanding that is your foothold of faith from which you can climb higher. And God will meet you in your need right here, right now. Um, I'm really looking forward to next Sunday when we take it apart and see what Jesus does. But isn't it good for us to leave with this foothold of faith? Father, my prayer is that you would find a way to make it personal for every person here. It's wonderful for us to believe these things in general, Lord, but we need to believe them personally and we need to believe them for ourselves right now. And so we call out to you, Jesus. We say, even now, even now with whatever way I feel I've been disappointed, even now with whatever I'm going through, Jesus, I trust you, I believe in you. And I'm gonna use the the foothold of faith that you've given me now to climb higher unto you. Bless us with this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.